Hello, my friends. Thank you for tuning into Summons from Gallifrey, the podcast focused on everything Doctor Who. I'm your host, Wazoo, and I want to thank you for spending some of your precious time with me today as we explore the adventures of our favorite Time Lord and his many companions on this weekly, bi-weekly, monthly show. Still haven't decided on the format. If you're just tuning in, welcome. The theme that I've come up with for Season 1 of this podcast is the Alpha and the Omega. We're going through all the first and last stories of each of the first seven Doctors. If you want to submit some feedback, please send your email to mailbag at summonsfromgallifrey.com. I'll be sure to go through some of them on the show. If you haven't yet, please take some time and leave a review for the show on your favorite podcast network. It helps the algorithm grow and spread the show around. With that aside, let's dig into the 10th planet. So a lot of changes in the program happening between the first season and now the third year of the show. The crew are working and filming at a frenetic pace of 48 weeks of the year. Ian Chesterton and Barbara Wright both leave the show together in the concluding episode of The Chase in Season 2 with the help of an abandoned Dalek time machine. They end up arriving back where they left in an unearthly child, albeit two years later. Susan Foreman leaves the show earlier on during the same season during another Dalek story called The Dalek Invasion of Earth. She falls in love with the 22nd century freedom fighter and at first feels guilty for leaving the Doctor, but he locks her out of the TARDIS in order to help her make up her mind. There's a few mentions throughout the entire history of Doctor Who with regards to the relationship between Susan and the Doctor, but the show never really fully explores this angle. A 25th century orphan by the name of Vicky joins the Doctor for nine stories in season two and three, along with a space pilot named Stephen Taylor, who first appeared in The Chase and leaving in The Savages in season three. When Vicky leaves the crew to stay after the fall of Troy, she ensures that a Trojan girl named Katerina takes her place, who doesn't stay long herself and only remains for five episodes, leaving the show in The Daleks' Master Plan in Season 2. Not just leaving, mind you, but is the first companion of the Doctors that is actually killed off. A companion from the 1960s named Dodo was also traveling with the Doctor and Stephen, but then leaves during Season 3's The War Machines. Finally, by the end of Season 3, where we're taking a look at the 10th planet, the Doctor had two new companions a British sailor named Ben, and a posh spice type of character named Polly. By season three in 1966, the tone and mood of the overall program behind the scenes was in a complicated state. Producer Verity Lambert left the show midway through season three, which had a major impact on the entire crew, most especially William Hartnell, who had developed with Verity a great working relationship. Hartnell clashed almost immediately with the incoming producer team of Wiles and Lloyd, who kind of sound like a law firm. Due to this relationship, his somewhat failing health, and perhaps the exhaustive shooting schedule, William Hartnell declines the offer to extend his contract past season three. Eventually, the production team comes up with a radical idea to keep the show going. Find a new doctor and come up with a way of morphing him into Hartnell's role. Most of the scripts for the latter half of season three were already written with Hartnell's health in mind, keeping his storyline responsibilities as loose as possible within the final stories, a strategy that suddenly paid off during production of The Tenth Planet. 
Hartnell could not film episode 3 due to falling ill, so Jerry Davis had to rewrite the script, working most of the doctor's lines over to Ben, until Hartnell could return for the filming of episode 4. By the 10th planet, the episodes also no longer had individual titles as they did since An Unearthly Child. It was also discovered that there was no surviving video footage of episode 4 in the BBC archives. For a release of the story, The Tenth Planet, on DVD in 2013, the BBC chose to have the entire fourth episode completely animated. The production team also decided that there should be some computer tape, uh, audio, text and audio effects during the opening and closing graphic titles, which were created by graphic designer Bernard Lodge. Let's kick off The Tenth Planet. Sergeant! That was an order! Take that man back to the... Back to your places! Oh, no! Come back, Tony! Don't blow your radio! Sir! Now, look, I don't know who you are or what you are. But we've got two men in space. If we don't act now, we won't get them back alive. They will not return. Why not? It is unimportant now. But we must get them back. We'll... There is really no point. They could never reach Earth now. But don't you care? Care? No. Why should I care? As we open episode one, we see a shot of a rocket going up into space. Cut to some NASA-like headquarters in the Antarctica taking over communications with the rocket. The station manager, well, no, okay, he's not station manager, but he ends up being General Cutler. Je General Cutler reinforces that they're in the Antarctica by making a comment about penguins. Some soldier is looking outside through a periscope thing that's slowly swiveling around the landscape. Just, it's kind of one of those things where just as the camera moves by, the TARDIS lands right outside near the base just outside of where the camera was a few moments earlier, of course. So Polly, Ben, and the Doctor dress up and head out. Quite a difference from an unearthly child. The Doctor just kind of wings open the doors and shoes everybody out. Quite different from the hu huge routine that him and Susan went through in an unearthly child, where they're checking radiation, they're checking oxygen, etc., etc., etc. They made a real big deal out of it. But in this one, he just wings open the door, everybody out. It's kind of funny. The first thing that Polly notices right away, of course, is this big periscope-looking thing that's swiveling around, that's poking out of the ground. So, of course, she goes to stand right next to it. I mean, wouldn't everyone? In the base, the soldier, of course, jumps back in shock as he suddenly sees Polly um, looking through the other side of the camera. He starts shouting to everyone nearby that there's people outside. And so they scramble, and a few of them then pop out of the ground right behind the Doctor, Polly, and Ben, and lead everyone into the base at gunpoint. After a few questions, which they don't really get answers from the Doctor from, the guards look to call General Cutler, the commanding officer. Cutler comes into the room demanding where the three have come from, and he's surprised to hear that there's suddenly a new hut right near, landing right near the base, well, appearing right near the base. They're obviously not getting any clear answers from the doctor, so they're being, they're brought under guard to the observation room, to the control, which ends up being the control room. They call it the observation room, but it's more of a control room. Definitely the control room. 
they find a wall calendar nearby, and in big, huge letters, it's 1986. Numbers, sorry. <laughs> in big, huge numbers, it's the year 1986, December 1986. Despite the fact that they're being considered prisoners, and that they're at a military base, which is supposed to be top secret, their guard is incredibly chat chatty and dumps a whole bunch of exposition on them, letting them know that they're at the South Pole, that they're in a military base, that they're monitoring a rocket heading for the moon, I think. Anyway, the crew in the command center suddenly notice that the rocket they're monitoring is heading way off course. While confirming their position, they suddenly spot, the, the crew of the rocket suddenly spot another planet, something new that's appeared between Mars and Venus. They then realize that they're slowly starting to lose power. Meanwhile, on the base, the doctor tries to talk to Cutler as he already sus suspects what the crew of Zeus 4 has seen. As usual, they ignore the doctor and decide that they'll bring Zeus 4 down in an emergency splashdown. The Zeus 4 crew run into some problems and the two of them the two of the astronauts realize that they can't move. It takes a lot of effort to move. Back in the command center, the doctor tries to help one of the scientists, and they discover on a monitor that the new planet looks very Earth-like. Polly and Ben are even picking out continents which resemble the continents on Earth. The doctor then starts off a story with millions of years ago, there was another planet, an, a twin planet of Earth. But, the gen but General Cutler gets irritated, won't hear of it, and leaves the room right away, bringing the scientist guy with him. The general picks up the phone and calls his boss in Geneva. The doctor becomes very concerned as he knows what the planet means. He warns Ben and Polly that soon they're going to have visitors. Cutler tries to get some answers out of the doctor again and forces his troops to investigate the hut, aka the TARDIS. The soldiers get themselves ready to go up without checking the periscope. You know what that means. Meanwhile, outside, a small ship is landing very quietly nearby. The soldiers then stumble out into the snow and try to break into the TARDIS without much success. Two of them leave to get equipment while one leaving one on his own, trying to get into the door. Then from around a nearby snowbank, we see some metallic humanoids appear, walking towards the dude, slowly and menacingly. He finally spots them, he pulls out a gun and fires a few rounds until getting smacked by one of the metal dudes. It looks like a judo chop. The other two soldiers come back out with equipment and they also get clubbed down almost instantly by the same metal dudes. Then one of the metal dudes looks at the camera. Cliffhanger. Episode two opens up with Cutler in disbelief while the doctor tries to explain they'll be getting visitors from the other planet. Cutler retreats into the control room and gets back to trying to help the Zeus for a rocket. He tries to reassure them that they'll be back on Earth shortly, but he's not really sure how that's going to happen. Meanwhile, back outside, the three metal dudes have put on the jackets of the three fallen soldiers. Back in Geneva, the Secretary General is trying to get a hold of General Cutler while watching the International Television News report on the appearance of the new planet. The news anchor shows the first photo of the planet, which is the same one we saw on the monitor in Episode 1, and makes a statement that while the planet is approaching Earth, there is no cause for alarm. I mean, why would there be? A new planet appears, no cause for alarm. Moving through space on its own, everything's okay, folks. It definitely won't come near enough to collide. Can you imagine a news reporter saying that? Anyway, 
The Secretary General and his staff realize that their signals to the South Pole base are being blocked by an unknown force. Back at the base, which they're calling the Snowcap, the control room is calculating how to bring Zeus 4 in, and we see from at the back of the room the three figures wearing the coats come into the room. The doctor spots them and tries to quickly warn Cutler and some of the other scientists, but they don't get to, but he doesn't get too far. Polly screams as the three figures throw off their jackets, revealing themselves. Cutler orders one of the nearby guards to grab them, but the guard is shot down instantly by a ray gun. The, three, the leader of the three metal figures informs them that they won't be able to help the Zeus IV crew. They're going to die. Polly tries vainly to argue with the metal dude, but he basically dismisses her. He reveals that the name of their planet is Mondas. At one point, their planet was indeed a twin planet of Earth, but then drifted out towards the edges of space. And now they've returned. They finally reveal that they're called cyber Cybermen. They were developing similar to the human race until their cybernetic scientists determined that their, ra their entire race was getting weaker as they got older. Their lifespans were getting shorter and shorter, so the plan was to replace components of the human body with computer technology until finally they were an entirely computer race. Just wanted to make a point here that when the Cybermen are talking, they're simply opening their mouth while their dialogue is voiced over. So it kind of looks weird the first few times you see it. And the dialogue comes out in a little bit of a sing-songy voice. They talk like this when they want to discuss things. Anyway, I'll, I'll cut some, some of their speech in here. You have to hear it to believe it. Polly is getting upset at them, but the Cyberman tells her that the last organic piece, piece of them are certain tiny parts of their brain. They removed their emotions as they considered them a weakness. Cutler takes this opportunity to lunge for a nearby console and send a, sends a distress signal back to Geneva. We then cut to Geneva and the Secretary General who's dropping dialogue to let us know that the Earth is losing energy and that the energy loss is somehow directly related to how close Mondas is getting. He's informed by, by his secretary of the emergency signal, but it's been disconnected right away. The Cybermen knock out Cutler and get the main scientist Barclay to answer Geneva's messages, to make it appear like everything is okay. Basically, Barclay does the Han Solo thing in the Death Star and manages to convince Geneva that everything is all right. After disconnecting, he makes another plea to the Cybermen to save the Zeus IV crew. Again, the Cybermen states that the pull of Mondas is too great. The Zeus IV crew will die. But he allows them to contact the crew, as long as they don't try any tricks. While that's happening, Ben tries to come up with an escape plan. He grabs a nearby gun when the Cyberman spots him and orders his arrest. As a show of how strong the Cybermen are, he takes the, the gun from Ben's hands and easily bends it in half. Then he tells the guard to take him away and look after him. It's ominous, but I have no idea what... You don't really know what he means. Look after him and kill him, or... He demands obedience from the humans. Ben is thrown into a film projection room as the Cyberman locks the door. Ben briefly looks around and just sees, of course, film and projection equipment everywhere. Up in the Zeus IV rocket, the crew are trying to correct their course to get back to Earth. They fire their engines a few times, and then they discover that they're out of fuel. They realize they're not getting any closer to Earth and are, and are being pulled even faster towards Mondas. The command center loses the signal as the rocket is lost.
The Cyberman explains that the only way the humans can be saved is if they come back to Mondas. Mondas will remain there until all the energy from the Earth is absorbed. We then cut to Ben, who's trying to get out of the room. He comes up with a plan to blind a Cyberman with the movie projector while he makes his escape. So he thumps, he turns on the projector, aiming it at the door. He thumps on it, and a Cyberman comes into the room, immediately being blinded by the projector. Ben takes this time to steal the Cyberman's ray gun and uses it against him to kill him. Back in the control room, the remaining humans would rather stay on Earth and take their chances instead of going to Mondas, which the Cybermen can't understand. So Polly starts a conversation. At the far side of the room, Cutler quietly regains consciousness, unnoticed by the nearby Cyberman whose back is to him. While the Cyberman is discussing the superiority of the Cyber race, Ben sneaks into the room and passes the ray gun to the general. Cutler opens fire, killing both remaining Cybermen. He then demands to speak to the general secretary. Not the secretary general. It's kind of funny. Cutler explains to the secretary general that they had three visitors from Mondas who have been subdued. The secretary general pauses to tell his people to put every military base around the world on full alert. He then asks Cutler if they could withstand another attack, to which Cutler assures him that they'll be fine, of course. Men from, men from space will be, will be okay. The Secretary General tells Cutler that they had sent up another rocket to try and help the Zeus IV crew, and that it's manned by Cutler's own son. Cutler goes into action at the base. He wants them to establish immediate contact with the sun, he wants the guard doubled everywhere on the base, and he wants all the missiles that they have armed and ready to fire. While the doctor warns Cutler that he's underestimating the Cybermen, the command center picks up dozens of cyber ships on the radar, all in formation and heading towards his son's rocket. Cliffhanger. Okay, let's get started on episode three. So Cutler tells his men to get in touch with Zeus V fast. Meanwhile, the doctor lets out a really loud groan and collapses to the ground. Remember, this is the episode that Hartnell doesn't appear in at all. So we only see this, this person from behind. We only see the doctor from behind as they take him out of the room. The command center establishes contact with Zeus V, and Cutler informs them that they're going to try and bring him home right away. Ben and Polly make sure the doctor is okay in, in a bed, then they leave and return to the command room. They arrive just in time for Cutler to give them his top three priorities. One, his son is up in Zeus V, and they have to bring him home. Two, another visit from the Cybermen is a certainty. And number three, the Earth is being drained of energy by Mondas. He then comes up with a plan that he's going to use the Z-bomb rocket to destroy Mondas. He picks up the phone to Geneva and begs the Secretary General for permission to use the Doomsday weapon. The Secretary General denies, declines the request, with the argument that due to how close Mondas is to Earth, all the radiation fallout will kill half the planet. But the General plays some word games and manages to get enough permission to leap to the conclusion that he can use the Z-bomb. Basically, he asks the Secretary General if he can use any means necessary to defend themselves from attack, to which the Secretary General agrees. Ben explains that there's another way to deal with the threat of Mondas. Somehow before collapsing, the doctor had told Ben that while Mondas is consuming Earth's energy, it will eventually be overloaded and destroy itself. All they have to do is wait. But the general won't hear of it, and wants to accelerate the destruction of Mondas. He and Dyson, another scientist, leave the room to arm the warhead. 
Polly comes up with the suggestion that she can help by making coffee for everyone. Really, Polly. Or I should say, really, writers. Meanwhile, Ben can't seem to wake the doctor. He spots an air vent which looks to be about Ben-sized up on the top of the room. Barclay and Cutler enter the warhead arming room. The warhead is dangling in the middle of the room. The warhead is dangling above a platform with some scientists making some last-minute checks. Dyson also tries to convince Cutler to wait, as the doctor said, but again, Cutler won't hear of it. He's convinced the Z-bomb is a silver bullet and will destroy all the Cybermen. Well, destroy Mondas. Back in the control room, Barclay is trying to contact Zeus-5 while Polly is asking everyone how they'd like their coffee. Barclay answers as it comes, which is a pretty interesting way to take your coffee. I don't know if I've ever... Maybe it was a common expression in the 60s. I don't know, but I've, I've never heard of it. How would you like your coffee as it comes? Maybe try that next time you go into Starbucks. Maybe you'll get the coffee thrown at you. I don't know. <laughs> at any rate, Polly tries to ask Barkley about the general, more about the general, but he barks at her to just keep her mind on the coffee. Yikes. It's pretty cringy. To his credit, to the show's credit, he does apologize right away and sympathizes that they're all feeling frustrated and powerless to really do anything. She presses him a little bit more about the Z-bomb and he admits that there could be a huge radiation fallout and enormous loss of life, not to mention massive vegeta vegetation loss on Earth. They go back and forth and Polly finally proposes a plan that they can agree on. They'll, ag they'll agree to work, they'll agree in principle to work with the general They'll, they'll do whatever they can to sabotage the rocket from being fired. The general returns to the control room just as the fleet of cyberships decide to head down towards the base. Actually, only a couple of them. A couple of the cyberships head down towards the base. The general puts the base on red alert and convinces the three captured ray guns against them. Barclay and Polly sneak out to go see Ben. Barclay realizes that the ventilation shaft from the room that they're in leads right to the room where the Z-bomb is, of course. Ben can use the shaft and disable the missile. Barclay and Polly will distract the guards from the outside while Ben disables the warhead on the inside. Barclay draws up a diagram for him on a napkin, telling him to look for a panel marked Plug Servo Leads, but it's just scrawled handwriting. I have no idea if the words are actually Plug Servo Leads. Ben can disable the warhead by removing any of the four lead plugs, and they wouldn't know it for months. Suddenly, a klaxon rings out. The cyber ships are landing. A cyber patrol comes out of one ship and makes its way towards the base, oblivious to the raygun trap that the soldiers have set up. The patrol conveniently gathers together near the doors to the base, and the raygun's fire bringing almost all of them down. Two of them manage to escape, and they disappear behind a nearby snowbank. Meanwhile, Ben is sneaking through the ventilation system and gets into the warhead room. Using the diagram drawn by Barclay, Ben hunts around for the plug servo leads panel. Ugh, it doesn't roll off the tongue easily, folks. Plug servo leads. Meanwhile, in the control room, Cutler sees that Barclay is missing. He puts two and two together and becomes suspicious and heads to the war warhead room just in time to catch Ben halfway into a panel. He knocks Ben over the ledge, over a nearby ledge, and orders him arrested. And this is actually a pretty scary stunt. It's a second story, if you imagine a second story balcony with the rocket in the middle of the room. And the general just shoves Ben right over the railing uh, and he falls to the ground. 
He grabs Barclay and they return back to the control room. After threatening an unconscious Ben, Cutler starts the countdown. He talks to his son on Zeus 5 and tries to assure him that he'll bring him home soon. Barclay begins the final round of checks, including the bomb fuse team, gotta check in with them, and starts the countdown at T-minus two minutes. Poor Ben starts to wake up. Polly's trying to find out it from Ben if he's finished, but I mean, he can barely, he barely recognizes where he is, let alone what he was doing just before being knocked out. He's probably fighting a massive concussion while Polly is dabbing his head with a cloth. The countdown gets to 10 seconds. Nine, eight, seven, six. And as the countdown reaches one, cliffhanger. The countdown gets to one, the rocket engines start to ignite, but then immediately fail. Polly shouts for joy, but then is silenced by the general, who promises they won't live long to enjoy it. He tells them to fetch the doctor. And there's a great line there where Polly says, but he's ill, and the general answers with, he's gonna get worse. Anyway, the doctor enters the room on his own. He's not sure why he suddenly felt ill, but chucks it up to his old body becoming, fl becoming frail. Cutler pulls out a gun and waves it at Barclay's face, demanding that he restore the rocket or he'll kill him point blank. A transmission from Zeus 5 cuts into the conversation, and Cutler Jr. tells Cutler Sr. that he's seeing Mondas brighten up, then go dim again. The doctor exclaims that Mondas is absorbing too much energy and is starting to overload. The signal to Zeus 5 cuts out again as an operator notices more of the fleet heading down towards their base. Cutler labels the doctor as his enemy, convinced that his son is now dead. Just as he's about to pull the trigger, the lights flicker into the control room and the door bursts open. The room is filled with Cybermen. Polly screams and some ray guns fire and kill the general instantly. The Cybermen orders everyone to stop or they'll be killed. The doctor thanks them for saving their lives from General Cutler. But they heard them to join the rest of the control room crew in the corner. The doctor also confesses that they stopped the Z-bomb rocket countdown and asked the Cybermen to help them out. He tells the Cybermen that he knows Mondas is finished and asks the Cybermen about staying on Earth and living in peace with the humans. The Doctor then quietly admits to Ben, Polly, and Barkley that he's playing for time while Mondas self-destructs. The Cybermen will only deal with the Doctor if they remove the warhead from the Z-bomb. The Doctor agrees. The Cybermen plan to take Polly hostage as a bargaining chip. Meanwhile, Barkley, Ben, and some of the others leave to deal with the rocket. The doctor makes the Cyberman give his word that Polly will be returned once the rocket is disarmed. On board their ship, the Cyberman put Polly, puts Polly unconscious and sits her in a chair. The Cybermen in this story, they have a technique of, it's not really like a Vulcan mind meld, but it kind of looks similar, where they put their hands, put their hands to the head, heads of someone, and that's what knocks them out. So they're not crushing their skull, they're not uh, doing anything like that, but it's, it's, I don't know. They don't even give it a name either. They just, the Severmen walk up really slowly, lifting up their hands and pressing on, knock them out. Anyway, Polly falls unconscious and they sit her in a chair. Back in the control room, Geneva now calls again, looking for Cutler. The doctor picks up the receiver and informs the Secretary General that he's in charge. The Secretary General tells him that the cyber ships are landing all over the planet. They then end the conversation with Geneva. The Cyberman informs his crew to prepare to leave. The Doctor finally realizes that the Cyberman planned to use the Z-bomb against the Earth. He grabs the communicator and tries to warn Barclay and Ben. 
In the rocket room, Ben hears the doctor's warning, and they start to piece together that the Cybermen still need them to move the warhead. They can't do it on their own, despite being far stronger than the humans. They theorize that the Cybermen are afraid of radiation. Ben tells Barkley and the others to lie down and feign death to tr while they try and lure Cybermen into the room to see what will happen. Ben opens the door, the Cyberman stumbles in and immediately gets weak, kind of getting dizzy-ish. Ben grabs his ray gun and then shoves the Cyberman back outside the room, closing the door. In the control room, the doctor tells the cyber leader that they're in a stalemate. Although the Cybermen can do anything they want with Polly, it won't help Mondas. The Cybermen acknowledge that due to the close proximity of the planets, one of them must be destroyed for the other to live. They take the doctor prisoner and give Ben and the others three minutes to finish disarming the warhead. The doctor and Polly are chained up in the cyber ship, but can feel it starting to hum with power as Mondas starts to get overwhelmed. The doctor theorizes that they, the, every, every cyber ship draws power from Mondas. Meanwhile, Ben and Barkley are searching for something radioactive that's small enough to be moved around by hand. Barclay comes up with the idea of a reactor rod, while Dyson is against the whole idea. He's convinced the Cybermen will let them live, but is eventually persuaded by Ben. Mondas is glowing and pulsing more rapidly as it's absorbing more power from Earth. The Cybermen want to re-establish communication with Ben as the three minutes are up. Barclay and Ben shut the station's power down while holding some reactor rods. They leave the warhead room to look for Cybermen. Back in the control room, the Cybermen gathers two others, and they head down to the war room themselves. Ben and the others gather in a hallway, and they tell Dyson and one of the other scientists to hide themselves with, one, with a, each of them with a reactor rod. And then they see the Cybermen coming, and they, the, the rest of the group rush back into the, into the warhead room, shutting the door. The Cybermen ask them one more time to surrender, and Ben refuses. One of them then pulls out some kind of gas canister and opens it up to flood the warhead room with gas. Ben realizes that they're in trouble, so he flings open the door and kills one Cyberman with a ray gun. Before the other Cybermen can use their weapons, Dyson and the other scientists come out from behind them, holding the reactor rods, which caused the Cybermen to fall over, long enough for Ben to shoot them both with the ray gun. The humans get back to the control room. Ben starts to worry that he'll never see the Doctor or Polly again if, if their ship takes off. Barclay comes up with an idea. He spots the nearby cyber communicator that the Cyberman was using it and tells Ben to just fiddle with it. It'll become obvious to the Cybermen what's going on and they'll, they'll draw them there. Basically, they want to set a trap to ambush him with the ray guns that they have. The power flickers on and off a few times, which distracts the humans, so they don't notice the other band of Cybermen entering the control room until the lights come back on and it's too late. But then they all suddenly watch a nearby monitor where Mondas itself is finally breaking apart. The Cybermen in the room fall apart as well, being completely dependent on Mondas. Cutler Jr. suddenly comes back online and tells the team to work to bring him home. Barclay calls Geneva who exclaims the menace is over all over the world. Ben rushes out to find the Polly and the Doctor in the cybership. Ben frees Polly and the Doctor, and they, they try and revive the Doctor, who really does look weak and frail. He stumbles to his feet. He then exclaims that he must urgently get back to the TARDIS. Ben wants to say goodbye to the station crew, 
but him and him him and Polly chat for a few minutes while the doctor takes off right away. They get back to the TARDIS to find the doors locked, and they start banging on them, yelling at the doctor to let them in. Meanwhile, the doctor is inside, slumped over the controls, and as Polly and Ben run into the room, he falls over to the ground. The TARDIS dematerialization sound sound effect is played while there's a big glowy effect on the doctor's face and effect around the doctor's head gets brighter and brighter and brighter. After a few seconds, William Hartnell's face kind of morphs out and Patrick Troughton's face blends in. And there we have it. That's the end of the 10th planet. All right. Well, before we go into it, I'll go through some of the numbers. Episode 1 pulled in 5.5 million people. Episode 2, 6.4 million. Episode 3, 7.6. And Episode 4, a final 7.5 million. The last episode, Episode 4, is completely missing from the BBC archives. And a animation crew put together a full, an, a, full an, a full animation for the DVD release of the story in 2013. And it looks incredible. They had all the audio from Episode 4. So they just, they just meshed that with anima animation. So this is the first regeneration. Patrick Troughton was unnamed in the credits, but was briefly revealed in the last few seconds. This is the first time this regeneration sequence is seen, but they don't even give it the name regeneration until much later in Doctor Who in Planet of the Spiders, which we'll be covering as part of John Pertwee's stories. The cliffhangers themselves for each of, the, each of these four parts were really well done. They were really well chosen. I think they were good cliffhangers. They had you on the edge of your seat as to what's going to happen, especially the rocket countdown. That, that got incredibly tense. I think you could see a mile away that that was going to be the cliffhanger, but even, even still, the buildup of it was really well done. Out of five, I think I give it, and I give this one a three out of five. I think the model shots of the cyber ships are pretty good for the 1960s. The story survived and actually still made sense despite not having any involvement from the Doctor completely in episode three. It's a little bit hokey how they write them out, but what can you do uh, when a main character doesn't show up to filming? I think they handled it very well. Kudos to the production team for putting that together. And that's all I had for episode two, The 10th Planet. Thanks again for joining us today. If you haven't already, please leave a review and a rating on in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us, everyone, and I'm looking forward to the next episode where we tackle the power of the Daleks. Take care, everyone. Peace. It was Lieutenant Barkley who first suggested a link between the two incidents. What? No, it wasn't. I mean, not really. Will your investigation affect our available power during the mission? No. No, sir. We'll have to shut off some systems. We'll uh, shut them down a few at a time. It shouldn't... Uh, I don't think so. Good. I look forward to your report, Mr. Broccoli. Barclay. <laughs>